Meanwhile, on the Godbeat. Hey, Godbeat listeners. I'm JP Keenan, multimedia editor for Sojourners. Over the past 10 months, we've been following the case of a teenage girl in Ohio who shot her father one night after allegedly enduring a lifetime of his abuse. This local tragedy became a national movement for criminal justice reform and a model for the church on how to engage with domestic violence awareness. Here's Jenna Barnett, our Women and Girls Campaign Associate, with the story. No one really debated what happened that night in July. It was all about the whys. Why did she feel so desperate? Why couldn't we, her family, social services, police, the church, make her feel safe? And what does that mean for her trial? At times, the justice system considered Brescia Meadows a future threat, considering trying her as an adult while the general public, on the other hand, considered her a survivor, even a hero, and demanded her release. Some churches stayed silent. Others offered grace and public prayer. And in just under a year, the name Brescia Meadows has become a rallying cry for activists all over the U.S. This was in Chicago when activists began raising awareness of the case. Her apples bruised, her stem swollen, daddy has plucked her hollow, so I shot wormholes in his body. Months earlier, on the morning of July 28, 2016, 14-year-old Brescia Meadows shot her relentlessly abusive father while he slept on the couch using his 45 caliber handgun. Her mother, Brandy, called the cops. And just to warn you, this 911 call is difficult to hear. It contains adult language. 911. Yeah, I need an ambulance. Where at? I think I'm I, I, I need something. Um, What's going on there? My daughter, she has mental issues. And she just shot my husband in the fucking head. She shot your husband? In the head. What's her name? A week later, Brandy would go on to call her daughter a hero in an interview with local Fox News. And she helped us all. And I'm, I'm, she's my hero, our hero. And now we need to move forward and have us a better life. Two months before that night, Brescia ran away from home, telling her family and friends that she feared for her life. Five years before that, her mother filed a police report. This is what she wrote back in 2011. In the 17 years of our marriage, he has cut me, broke my ribs, fingers, the blood vessels in my hand, my mouth, blackened my eyes. I believe my nose was broken, she wrote. If he finds us, I am 100% sure he will kill me and the children. Later, Brandy would go on to redact this report. That's not uncommon for people caught up in the cycle of domestic violence. Brescia has now been behind bars for more than 300 days, awaiting trial for aggravated murder. This is the story of the systems that failed Brescia Meadows and the organizers, pastors, and community members who are trying to make it right. Molly Toth, an advocate for Brescia through the YWCA, still remembers the day she heard about Brescia Meadows shooting her father. 
That summer, Molly was running a program for youth in Warren, Ohio, the city Brescia's lived most her life. She overheard a few of the teens talking about the case while they ate breakfast. The kids came in, and they were all just, like, they were just chit-chattering about it, but, like, in hushed tones, like, they didn't want adults to know what they were talking about. But I was sitting at the table behind them, and I overheard one of them say, like, I can't believe what she did. And then another kid said, um, you know, if I'd lived in that house and put up with that, I would have done it a lot sooner. And just seeing how shaken up they were and how affected they were, um, it was really powerful. I think this is the, I've been saying this the whole time, that this is the kind of thing, it always happens somewhere else. It's not supposed to happen here is the attitude that people have. Um, But it did happen here. Warren is a small city in northeastern Ohio, a former steel town with a shrinking population. Just about 40,000 people live here, 68% white and 28% African-American. When the incident with Brescia happened last summer, the first thing I thought was, here is a young African-American, a biracial girl, who comes from a poor family who has experienced violence and if the tables were turned and if this was a young white girl, what would the outcome be? Arrested black girls are almost three times as likely as white girls to be referred to court. Black girls are 20% more likely than white girls to be in detention. And overall, Girls' arrests have increased 45% since 1992. In the months following the death of Brescia's father Jonathan, or Johnny, as some family members called him, things were looking bleak for Brescia. Jonathan's siblings maintained that he was not abusive. She sat in juvenile detention while she waited to see if officials would try her as an adult for murder. Brescia was 14 the night of the shooting, but Ohio law allows children between 14 and 17 to be tried as adults under certain circumstances. Luckily, in December, the prosecution decided to try Brescia in juvenile court for aggravated murder. But that just means she'd be in jail until she turned 21, burdened by a criminal record for the rest of her life. And for survivors of violence, detention can be re-traumatizing. Brescia would go from feeling trapped in her own house, fearful of abuse from her father, to being trapped in a jail cell for six more years, fearful of more triggering violence, this time for mandatory strip searches or the sexual aggression of guards and other inmates. 12% of juveniles say they've been sexually victimized by other inmates or staff, according to a 2010 Justice Department survey. Brescia could have easily been one more survivor of abuse whose story was told without context, or worse, simply not told. Matt Vinzant, a local organizer with Valley Voices United for Change, was one of the earliest activists following the case. He cares about Brescia, and he also cares about what her story could mean for other survivors of abuse. She represents a narrative. I think she represents a story that's being told everywhere about um, what makes our communities safe, what makes our communities healthy. And I think she really is the poster child, uh, for lack of a better word, she's the poster child for um, this idea of restorative justice versus punitive justice, you know what I mean? Does the incarceration of this 14-year-old girl make us safer? 
I don't know if that is a yes. You know, I don't know if I feel safer with that. Um, I think that I could have been Brescia Meadows. I grew up in a household where the father was very abusive, um, where my mother was constantly afraid for her life. We had to sleep in the car to get away from him. Um, and I just think about the pain that my mother went through and that the family, the stress of the family and just being scared every day for your life. That alone is enough to drive you insane. But the public and the courts don't always get stories or trials with so much context. Breesh's attorney, Ian Friedman, referred to this punitive hastiness as the assembly line of crime to conviction. We hear that a child has committed a crime without pausing the machine to ask why the child committed the crime. There was failure by just about every adult that uh, Marisha had contact with growing up. And I think that this could have been prevented had social services, you know, done their job when this was, when the abuse was reported early on. Uh, if uh, the police department had taken the uh threats and the, the claimed abuse more seriously. If you find that you have a child uh, accused of any uh, serious juvenile offense, uh, we know that the key is, is mental health attention. And uh, we need, again, to ask ourselves, how do we protect these kids? How do we make sure that they're going to uh, be healthy adults? And, and, and unless you ask those questions, it's too easy. And I think that's the problem. The courts so often have taken the easy approaches, which is, oh, this is serious, let's put it, let's lock them up. And that's not the answer. All it does is prolong things. If Brescia is freed after her trial, it will be in part because people talked about abuse. These advocates didn't consider abuse in this situation someone else's private dirty laundry. They made what is often considered a domestic issue a community issue a national tragedy, a Christian concern. The Free Brescia campaign has thousands of followers on Twitter, and hundreds have downloaded a Pray for Brescia worship guide. People talked about it, tweeted about it, prayed about it, donated money to keep the conversation alive in the courtroom. They even raised over $100,000 for court fees and mental health treatments for Brescia. They've rallied people across the country to flood Brescia with love letters and to flood the prosecutors with postcards to drop the charges. Brescia's attorney spoke to reporters about this impact that social media played. This matter can really be a case study in the utilization uh, and effects of social media for many reasons. I think what you're asking me is, did it help to get this get the parties to where we are, I can't say that. But what I can say is that uh, it's helping to ensure that this case will stand for so much more once it's concluded. Because there are many other Brescia Meadows out there um, who may not get the sort of attention that this case has garnered. I asked everyone I interviewed how the public can help Brescia and survivors of abuse like her. How we can make sure a child isn't made to feel so desperate that he or she goes for the gun. Everyone said some form of the same thing. Folks have to be willing to talk about domestic violence. From pastors to students, churches to Twitter accounts, everyone has to be willing to talk about the real issue and prevalence of domestic abuse. Organizers put up a free Brescia curriculum online 
so that people across the country can learn about girls like Brescia, but whose cases have been swept under the rug in what's become known as the Abuse to Prison Pipeline. 84% of girls in juvenile detention have experienced family violence. And the most common crimes for which girls are arrested, including running away, substance abuse, and truancy, are also the most common symptoms of abuse. Activists are trying to decriminalize survival. They're asking how we can answer these cries for help rather than just punishing survivors. Brescia's been in jail for almost 300 days. That's Thanksgiving, Christmas, her 15th birthday. And on May 8th, the small courtroom for what was supposed to be Brescia's final pretrial hearing was packed. On one side of the aisle sat Brescia's mother, aunt, and siblings. On the other, a handful of reporters and supporters, including people from the Ohio Student Organizing Association in the Ohio Women's March. They wore subtle free Brescia pens since the court stopped them from bringing their posters into the courtroom. Later, Brescia's brother and sister would ask to have a couple of those pens to take home with them. In the courtroom, we sat relatively quiet for over an hour while deliberations took place behind closed doors. When the doors opened and Attorney Friedman went to speak to Brescia's family, the tension finally broke. They exchanged words, and the family began hugging and crying with relief. Friedman would go on to tell the press that prosecutors offered Brescia a plea deal. They've sentenced her to one year and one day in detention, including the nine months she's already spent there. In July, she'll be released from juvenile jail and spend another six months at a private inpatient mental health care facility, where she'll get treatment for her PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Her family will likely have to pay for this treatment. Brescia entered a plea of true to an involuntary manslaughter charge. That's different from the original charge of aggravated murder. Her record will be expunged once she turns 21. But not all activists see this as a victory, including the National Free Brescia team. Ultimately, they want what the family wants. But they see plea deals as inherently dangerous a fear tactic to bully innocent people into admitting to crimes they didn't do because they're so scared of getting a harsher sentence. They're infuriated that Brescia will have to spend two more months locked up before being transferred to a mental health facility. I stayed in the courthouse to see how other supporters and family members of Brescia were feeling about her future. I wanted to know their hopes for Brescia, this girl who's been through so much, this girl with her young face painted on posters, hands wrapped around prison bars, cape wrapped around her shoulder. Molly, who we heard from earlier, just hopes for a normal life for Brescia. When I was 15, I was going to the park and I was hiking and I was hanging out with my friends and I was going on dates and going to dances and stuff. And that's what I want Brescia to be able to do. Um, even if she is released and... Um, it happens soon. She has still missed almost a year of her life, and she'll never be able to get that back. So my hope for Brescia is that the world is just endlessly good to her to make up for everything that it did wrong to her. Brescia's aunt, Martina Latessa, who Brescia will likely live with in Cleveland once she is released, 
said that she was feeling optimistic. The main hope of Breach's family, Latessa explained, has always been that she would receive mental health treatment. My main focus is Breach's well-being, Breach's treatment, Breach's life. I want her to live a productive life and be a contributing citizen, and I want her to, you know, one day when she's ready, to tell her story to other children, other young ladies and other young moms and young ladies who are victim of domestic, and little boys, and, and sometimes women are abusers as well. But, I mean, domestic violence, if anything, um, with her story is getting people talking about that. Because domestic never gets talked about, and it's very important. Reverend Marcia Dinkins, the executive director of the Mahoning Valley Organizing Collaborative, who has worked closely with both the National Free Brescia Movement and with Brescia's family, shared with me how she hopes the church will respond. The church has to be a safe place. The church has to be a place that is without judgment um, and with, that is without condemnation and that has a full understanding and an open heart uh, to help people in Brescia's situation. So that means removing uh, the word, parts of the word that we take and we judge, but use that word as, as they say, there's a healing balm in Gilead to bring that healing balm uh, that Gideon spoke of, to bring that place of, of rest that Jesus offered and, and to bring in that comforter that he said uh, we had, you know, through him. And I think from a spiritual standpoint, not superimposing spirituality or religion upon her, but su- but imposing and superimposing love. So is there a healing bomb in Warren, Ohio? Is there a healing bomb in the church or in our criminal justice system once we start talking and preaching about domestic violence? In some ways, lawyers, advocates, and pastors did free Brescia from an abuse-to-prison pipeline. But in other ways, justice never showed up for her. This all has me wondering, what can an infinitely gracious and forgiving God reveal to us about our dangerously punitive justice system? This story was written and produced by Jenna Barnett, edited by J.P. Keenan with help from Sandyville Rial, and special thanks to Lucy Hadley for research and fact-checking. And thanks to Lifted Voices, Kumba Links, Fox News 8, Vice News, and all the organizers of the Free Bisha Movement. We hope you enjoyed it.